Hello, and welcome to the 30th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. Our guest on this 30th episode is Monty Scott Leeper, a registered architect for 33 years who is certified to practice in all 50 United States and currently licensed and concentrating in New York State. Mr. Leeper is the principal of his architectural firm, Monty Scott Leeper Architect PC, which has performed professional services on more than 4,000 commercial and residential projects. He has been published over 1,500 times in his newspaper columns, Ask the Expert and Ask the Architect, in 30 newspapers with a weekly column over the past 29 years. Please check out the show notes for a full list of Monty Leeper's credentials and contact information. Please also keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. Monty Leeper, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so how did you become an architect? Well, it started with a mother who was an interior designer, a father who was an engineer. My father worked on Gemini and Apollo rockets. And I grew up uh, in uh, part of my childhood in Florida where they were developing new homes, generally as a child watching homes going up in my neighborhood. And that got me interested in construction. What area of Florida? In Orlando. Oh, interesting. I'm from Miami Beach. Ah. And so I kept my grades up and went through the entire process of developing a portfolio. I went to art school from the time I was in the first grade all the way through 12th grade, uh, private art school outside of school. I play uh, eight musical instruments as well. And uh, from the uh, cultural aspect, my mother taught us what she knew about interior design in, in the home. And I took that with me uh, in a portfolio to a university where I got a full scholarship uh, at Kent State University. And I went there for five years, went through that entire process, including a year of study in a school run by the Vatican in Florence, Italy on a full scholarship, and uh, ended up in Milan working on the interiors for high-speed trains, which is uh, ultimately what brought me from Ohio to an office in the city where I, in New York City, where I was uh, hired to work on the renovation of subway stations. When that ended, I started up my own practice again 33 years ago in Oceanside. And I have been doing uh, most of my work uh, in the uh, Long Island region. The, uh, I have done work now at this point on four continents. I've done work in uh, nine states, in the United States, worked on just about any kind of building that you could imagine. Okay, well, I see your creativity has expressed itself in many ways. So let's start with our first question. For homeowners who are thinking of making changes to their property, real property, and do not know where to start, what are some tips or advice you would give to them? Well, they have to know who to trust for the the right kinds of answers. Uh, And first, I would start with learning what decisions you need to make and who to give you the correct answers so that you can make those decisions. For example, an architect who has experience with the municipality where the work will be done should be the person answering questions about what is allowable and not accepted in your community. The budget, on the other hand, is the purview of the contractor since they do estimating and building. They also procure materials. They understand their overhead, profit, 
uh, labor, et cetera. So the t- and the tax assessor's office is the party you would ask about uh, any kind of tax increase information. How does someone find the proper architect, builder, or, or contractor and know where to go? How do you find that most people find successfully the right person for them? I think these days, uh, since most people don't use a phone book anymore, they use the internet, um, and it's good to find uh, people who are practicing in the local area where you're planning on doing the work. For and, example, if I live in the village of Lynbrook and I need and I want to extend my house, build a dormer, uh, do I need to find someone who is experienced in with the village of Lynbrook? Because that's also Nassau County. It's also town of Hempstead. Which jurisdiction am I looking at here? Well, it helps. It absolutely helps to find people who are experienced uh, with those municipalities. Uh, the interesting thing is Nassau County has 74 different municipalities. Basically, to keep working all the time, uh, someone like me, I've been working with all of those municipalities uh, as a matter of course because it's part of the county. So it wouldn't be that you would have to find somebody who works specifically in Limbrook, but you need to find people who are familiar with uh, that municipality or any of the other 74 municipalities. For all the listeners who are thinking of making changes to their real property and don't know how to start, why do they need the services of an architect? Well, first of all, it's required. In the state of New York, when you're doing anything structural, you're doing anything, uh, and most municipalities, by the way, have qualifications for this regarding uh, anything structural, anything that may be a specific dollar value. A typical dollar value would be things that are over uh, $10,000 uh, or 100 square feet, or in the case, like I said, if it's structural, because sometimes things are rather small, uh, like an, a, let's say a breakfast room addition would be a very small thing. And on the other hand, it affects a number of uh, issues with things that are structural, things that are Such required plumbing, for building electrical, code, plumbing, electrical, heating, uh, heating and cooling, mm-hmm. uh, also zoning requirements because it uh, now is something in excess of what the house originally was. Uh, so any of those items would be the purview of an architect. Okay, so let's say I live in Limbrook and I want to uh, build on a breakfast room. What documents do I need and how would you help me to start? Well, the very first thing that we always ask for is a a good survey, a survey that's readable, a survey that has uh, information on it relative to the size and shape of the house and relative to the size and shape of the property. A survey is like a blueprint, right? A survey is a plan or a map of the property that shows the location of the house on the property. Hopefully it shows things like the driveway, hopefully if there are any other uh, accessory structures, a shed, a deck, a pool fences uh, with information about them, distances from the property line, and like I said, size and shape. Okay, let's say I bought my house 20 years ago and I have a survey from that time. Is that survey good enough? The survey uh, is good enough if the survey still matches the property. On the other hand, most municipalities either want something that is no older than six months old or uh, an affidavit that may need to be signed by the licensed professional stating that the old survey matches what the conditions of the property are so that it can be used instead of the owner having to spend the money to get a new survey. So that's something you would advise me about, whether I need a a new survey or I could just do a survey inspection. Yes, if we were looking at the survey and finding that 
there are structures on the property that are not on the survey, uh, or if let's say the survey is missing dimensions, uh, we would then want to have a new survey because we need something that we can work with. The survey for an architect is a tool. It, and it's one of the first things we'll use because we are checking for zoning analysis because it, uh, if let's say you're adding that breakfast room, but you are already on the maximum amount of lot area that you can cover, or if you are going to exceed a setback requirement for a distance to a property line, um, we would need to know this right away. Setback meaning you're far enough away from, let's say, the street or from a, uh, a neighbor's property, correct? correct? That's okay. correct. So after we have the survey, what is the next document or step that you would take? Well, the next step we would take would be to give a written proposal because we would know what the work is going to entail. Again, if we exceed any of those issues with zoning, we may have to also include the uh, whole exercise of going through a zoning variance, which means not only applying to a building department, but then having a detour before the plans can be approved by going to a board of zoning appeals, which is a, a board of people within the community who have to scrutinize whether the size and shape of what we would be proposing is actually able to be accepted by the community. And to clarify, a variance is an exception to the rule, correct? Like if, if there is a law that you have to be set back a certain number of feet, you're asking for permission to either exceed or do something different than what the rule allows. Well, a variance literally is we're asking to vary from what the requirements are. How, how hard is it to get a variance, let's say in the town of Hempstead or the town of North Hempstead? It's not a matter of identifying a difficulty. What it is, is a matter of showing that you meet the criteria that is actually specified in the law in the state of New York as to the reasons why you believe your case should be approved. And then the zoning board will look at that and see if it's going to be something that's going to be detrimental to the community. Does the architect represent the homeowner in that appeal, in that uh, variance request? Not always. Uh, in some instances, the owner may represent themselves. They're allowed to in that particular venue, or they may hire an attorney. Uh, if, uh, if the case is more difficult, where they don't want to have either themselves or the architect represent the case, because some architects don't do anything with zoning variances, they will leave that to the owner to find their own way. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, and in, actually in all cases, my agreements with my clients recommend an attorney first. And then if the owner doesn't want to have an attorney, uh, because of my experience, I've had many, many zoning cases that I've represented at this point, I will usually represent the case. If okay. I feel mm -hmm. that it's not even worthwhile to pursue because I don't think that it's a passable case, I will let the owner know that because it doesn't pay to go through the entire process of planning something that you don't think can be approved based on past experience. And it sounds like that is one question that a homeowner should ask when interviewing architects to see who is the right architect for him or her, whether or not he or she has experience in these zoning matters and can advise appropriately. That's correct. And it's an interesting thing because I've spoken before the Bar Association and pointed out that there actually is a part of the law that is the purview uh, of, the, of an architect that attorneys generally don't handle, and that is building codes. Uh, zoning codes is one thing, and I, I deal with many attorneys that I consult with regarding uh, zoning cases. But when it comes to uh, building code, 
And building code actually is a part of what would be presented in order to show favor for why the case should be approved with a zoning board. Monty, I'm an attorney who handles real estate conveyances, even though I don't handle uh, zoning matters. And I often see sellers who want to sell their property, but they're delayed due to either lack of a permit or they have a permit, but they don't have a certificate of occupancy or a certificate of completion on an addition or a change. I find that years ago, lenders were not so picky, but now I find that the lenders want to see all certificates in place before approving a loan. So what should sellers do to prevent this mistake and when should they do it? Well, the seller first has to know who to listen to when it comes to doing a building project. Most building projects require a building permit. A lot of people believe that if it's something that's external, that would trigger a building permit, and that's not true. As a matter of fact, there's a mantra that many building departments kind of chuckle about, but but they believe is true, and that is that if you change a closet rod, they want to know. It's a little silly, but, but, but the fact is... But is that a revenue-generating uh, reason? Meaning, does every change within a building need approval by the town or by the, the village, or is that more a way for the authorities to generate some income? Well, there's a logic to why it would need to have a building permit. If, let's say you were moving a wall or taking a wall out between a dining room and a living room so that you have a big open space. First of all, you're altering the structure because generally there'll be structure sitting on that wall. The interesting thing is you're also altering the structure because you're, let's say it's a non-load bearing wall that you're removing. You're altering uh, the shape of the space. You're altering the load that was on the structure to begin with. Now taking uh, that weight away would seem like a good thing. Uh, But on the other hand, a weight distribution that changes could affect other issues. But another thing that takes place is that electrical is then affected and electrical needs to be inspected by a private agency. In many cases, uh, plumbing may be affected or the room configuration has changed. And it doesn't happen as often, but I know you see it in the movies, where when there's some kind of a crime being committed and there's somebody holed up in a, in a house uh, with a gun, for example, they somehow bring out a, a set of building plans and lay it down in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the trailer. And they're looking at where they have to maneuver to get around the house to, uh, to, to catch the perpetrator. Well, that is a very real situation in that the building department needs to know the configuration of that home. A fire department, in some instances, may need that. Uh, they also want to make sure that things are constructed correctly. They also want to make sure for building safety purposes that there is no harm that would come to any individual who's working on it because of the liability issues. And there's also the energy requirements because when you affect parts of a building, you affect potentially its ability to lose heat or uh, lose cool. Those are all good points. And we've been speaking about habitable space and the need for certificates of occupancy. But I want to switch to uh, the issue of certificates of completion and items which are perhaps outside the home. They're not areas of habitable space, such as a shed, such as a fence, or even an area where you may have an air conditioning compressor outside. And all of those need permits and certificates too. What is the reasoning for those certificates? Well, part of the reason, let's say, let's take a shed, for example. A shed in a windstorm 
is a missile. And when that thing is rolling around and rolls right through the side of the next house where people were basically huddling uh, because of a storm, it's a deadly object. So it has to be anchored properly to the ground, and, there's, and there are requirements in the building code for that. Uh, it also can catch fire, in which case, uh, and I actually uh, watched a film of, of that a client showed me because there was uh, a, a lawsuit over who started the fire, whether it started on uh, one side of the fence or the other. Uh, and it, uh, both the uh, garage that caught fire and the shed that then caught fire afterward were a certain distance apart from each other. But under New York state law, the distance separation is important because the uh, Chicago fire actually started with a, a fire in one shed that basically burned an entire city down. So proximity of flammable objects to a property line are important. Uh, and let's say it's a deck, same thing, distances for flammable materials. And uh, with fences, the ability in some cases for a fire department to knock down a fence to be able to fight a fire that may be spreading through an entire neighborhood. Now, the same thing with air conditioning units. If you put them in a side yard, you not only have a noise issue that many people complain about, but you also have the ability to restrict emergency equipment from having access in the case of fighting a fire. Okay. Or, uh, I mean, if it were something uh, for law enforcement, they're running in the dark and these objects are in their way and it becomes a hazard. Okay, so certainly a purchaser or a potential purchaser of property should make sure that all of these items on and located on a property have the appropriate uh, certificates on them. Otherwise, they are liable, correct? If you purchase a property and there's no certificate on the, on the shed, no That's certificate correct. completion, and the purchaser is liable. Most people have absolutely no idea about uh, the idea of a, an air conditioning unit, of all things, uh, where you have a condensing unit that's on the ground in a side yard. They believe that the uh, air conditioning company automatically took care of that, that it was done, and they'll swear that there's a permit for it. So I'm glad that we're discussing this because this little object, this one thing can, can hold up or cause a sale to not go through. The same thing I find with fences. Most fencing companies do not obtain the permits or obtain the certificates. They just put up the fence. So really it's on the owner of the property to carry that burden of making sure it's legal. That's correct. And I have actually asked legislators several times over probably the last two decades to try to introduce some kind of a bill that would mean that people who are actually doing the work would also have a responsibility because they're actually committing a crime where they're building something, even though the owner is responsible for their property, uh, they uh, have, have often either been misled by, let's say, a fence installer or a pool installer or an air conditioning company that something was legal that is not legal and is actually now going to become a burden. Right. And ignorance is no defense. So let's say I'm an owner with a problem. I've put on a deck. I have an air conditioning condenser, whatever the case may be. And I don't have a permit or a certificate. And I come to you. Is there anything I can do after the fact to legalize whatever addition I've made? Well, this happens daily. This is a constant where I get phone calls from people who are now desperate because they've just found out they've got two weeks before the sale of their home. And by the way, in most municipalities, two weeks is not enough, uh, not enough uh, by any uh, stretch, because we have to document uh, to file for what's called a maintain permit, because now you're going to be holding on to, you're going to be maintaining 
uh, that DAC or Shatterpool, whatever Meaning it's it is. existing already. You're just in the process of legalizing it. keep it. So uh, in order to keep it now, we have to document it, but we have to document it uh, in such a way that we show how it's constructed and we show how uh, it is situated on a property. And that's unfortunately where we go back full circle to the discussion of zoning variances, because in some cases, people will opt to remove completely something that has great value uh, because they're so concerned about losing the sale. And in some cases, uh, the sale falls through anyway because the people who wanted, let's say, that deck or that pool and find out that the owner opted to have it ripped down or removed from the ground, in the case of a pool, they, they no longer want the property. Right. And and they can legalize it. It just takes time. And it takes probably more money because of not only your fee, but they need a lawyer. They need to expedite the matter, everything takes a little bit of, of time and money after the fact. Well, a little bit of time is, is not the proper description because in most cases, people don't believe me when I tell them that it could take up to a year to legalize these things because they believe that the filing of this and the, and the producing of plans will only take a few weeks and nothing could be further from the truth. It just doesn't happen that way. First of all, it takes time to get out, measure, produce the existing condition drawings, look to see what the building code requirements are, zoning analysis, uh, then uh, again, producing the plans, submitting the plans with all the paperwork, having it reviewed. And now having it reviewed isn't something that happens instantaneously. Most municipalities are going to take anywhere from three weeks to three months, depending upon the size of the municipality, to even pick up the file and start to look to see what the problems are. Now, there are uh, processes to speed this up, including appealing with letters and copies of contracts showing that you're in an emergency situation because you're in a sale. But I think the average person has to understand that because this happens all the time, uh, the uh, people in building departments become a little bit numb to the fact that your emergency is really an emergency because a building department official in some instances, it's kind of like a lifeguard uh, looking over a swimming pool where everybody is claiming they're drowning. You have to decide now by looking around at each case, which one you throw the life preserver to first, because you can't serve everybody at the same time. So, so this is a constant problem. And it's a, it's a moral dilemma in some cases uh, where people are desperate to sell because they're either... They need the funds in order to purchase the next property and so on and so on, because those exchanges are all contingent upon each other. And in some cases, it's a financial situation. In some cases, it's um, I've had many times where I'm dealing with uh, a pregnancy where the, the uh, time frame uh, is very difficult. The person needs to move. They need to be in that home. Uh, in some cases, it's medical uh, of a different nature. I've had situations where People had to have certain types of extreme medical equipment uh, brought in and they were moving into a facility, a new home where uh, they were going to be facilitated. So in that case, a building official will seriously look at the whole situation. I've also had situations with fire where people are purchasing another home because it was going to take so long to rebuild and they have a loved one who uh, has to relocate again for medical reasons or because they need for a school uh, they, uh, so that the child can go to school in, in another district. Uh, so there are lots of different reasons why the conveyance has to be fed up. 
But on the other hand, there, again, there's, there's only so much you can do when you have too many people who need to do this at the same time. So the best thing that people can do is to understand that they need to have this process started before they actually do the work and to allow enough time, I mean, just on a whim, that you decide you're on, uh, in the beginning of June that by the 4th of July you need to have a deck and a pool doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a deck and a pool by the 4th of July. And now we're going to move to a segment called What is on Your Desk? A recent client or matter which you can use to illustrate a teachable legal moment to the listeners. So, Monty, what's on your desk? Well, I, probably one if I can select right now would be a uh, dry cleaners where the owner paid uh, an individual who supposedly was going to start the job. And I, they just showed me the paperwork. I only saw this two days ago. Uh, and I was dumbfounded by the fact that they paid a retainer uh, for somebody who never showed. And I was also surprised this is to, to see... This to a contractor? This was, no, to an architect uh, who also claims to have a, a law firm or works with a law firm as an architect. And the fee was taken. No work was performed. And when the owner showed me that the check for that work was March 2nd, of this past year and now today is December 27th and up to that point they had done nothing uh, the owner didn't pursue the matter hasn't been able to reach the individual and it's been it's going in uh, well it's 10 months already so we're starting this project from scratch and we're going to basically take this person out of the problem that they've got they've got to get the fire marshal inspection which is going to take them probably seven to eight months to get They've got to start uh, the entire process all over again of measuring the building, producing the drawings. Uh, they are going to be putting in a laundromat as part of their cleaners, which I think is a great idea because it will be the opportunity for people to probably save money by doing their own laundry. Uh, but on the other hand, municipalities are very concerned about people uh, loitering uh, and people being in that particular type of place late at night where there may be potential for crime. There are also environmental issues that we have to deal with because of the uh, types of uh, cleaning materials that are used. So it's, it's a process uh, and it's going to take a lot of time. And unfortunately, this person's lost 10 months. And a lot of money too. And a lot of money. So it's a good thing that he found you. For our listeners who would like to hear more from you, how could they find you? I write a newspaper column weekly. I've been writing it for 30 years. And uh, I regularly answer questions in that newspaper column. So if people have a question, they can write www.montyleeper.com, a question. And I get approximately 40 questions a week I choose from. And I have been answering questions like this for years, so I would be happy to answer your question. And your column is in the Long Island Herald, correct? Yes, it's the Long Island Herald. You can go to liherald.com and... Uh, you have to point to the bar that says experts, and you'll find Ask the Architect. Very good. I, I hope our listeners will do that. And that's it for our 30th episode today. Thank you, Monty, for coming on to the podcast. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, please rate us with a review that might start 
I just heard on the LA Law podcast that Governor Cuomo signed a bill banning the sale of household cleaning products and cosmetic or personal care products which contain the chemical 1,4-dioxane as of January 1, 2022. This carcinogenic compound has been found in drinking water wells throughout New York State and particularly on Long Island. Products include, but are not limited to, Victoria's Secret Shower Gels, Tide Original Laundry Detergent, and Dreft Stage 1 Newborn Baby Laundry Detergent. If you are using any of these products or others which contain 1,4-dioxane, you may want to switch the products now and not wait for 2022. The LI Law Podcast lets you know what's going on on Long Island and is your podcast for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.